Ladies and gentlemen, it's now the Statues and Stories Hour. I'm yours truly, Mac on the Rock with Blink Radio 94.5. I, uh, we have audacious Ed Vidal joining us from afar. I believe he's in Western Siberia, so if his name doesn't ring a bell on the show, hey, you know, people, the audience forgot him. But the most important person, the man of the hour, is Adam Levinson of Statues and Stories. How are you, Adam? I, I seem like hey. I, I know Governor Morris... Uh, intently now because of you. Yeah, I appreciate that, and it's, it's a pleasure to be on the radio with everybody, with, with Ed and uh, the whole team. The, the quick observation I want to make at the outset before we get into today's story, which is about Groovenier, and I'm going to pronounce his name the way that Abigail Adams wrote, with an N-E-E-R, uh, but uh, apparently it's derived from French, so uh, Groovenier Morris, but he was one of the founding fathers, and I'm going to introduce him as the, the forgotten founding father, and we can talk about that and debate about that, but before we delve into Groovenier Morris, who was one of my favorite founding fathers, uh, one of my favorite of that founding generation, he's a very colorful guy, so prior nights we've gotten into the weeds with legal discussions right tonight this is a this is a broad ranging a fun conversation about a true character in many ways but before we do that i wanted to just mention don shula and i know man you've been a, a fan yes he's a ticket holder since 1970 man don uh passed away at 90 today he was also struggling with an you know uh stomach i believe it was stomach cancer he 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 what you know he I don't want to talk about what he actually suffered from, but he, he it was a it was a tremendous battle, and he's he definitely raised the quality of my life big time. Uh, he was my hero, and uh, I remember watching the Dolphin games in the early '70s with my baseball cards literally on my lap while the game was on, and and as Larry Zonko would run for a first down, I'd pull out my baseball card, I mean you know my football card, and look at the cards like a little kid, and then look at the player, and a real big part of my life. That gave me a statistic I wasn't aware of. Ed, you want to mention that? Yeah, Don Shula is the winningest coach in NFL history. As you know, the NFL was founded 100 years ago. They just uh, played their 100th season. And they were, they've were they been some great coaches, you know, Vince Lombardi and George Hallis. Tom Landry. Tom Landry, right, yeah. And nobody, he, Don Shula won more games than anybody else in NFL history. And he won twice as many games as he lost. And you know what? He's the only guy with a winning record against the Oakland Raiders. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. That's great. And the Oakland Raiders were great when when he was uh, coaching. That they, you know, they had Al Davis, and they won several Super Bowls. So no, he's he is he's not only a long-standing coach, but he's a winning coach. And I think he was uh, other than Lombardi, he was one of the first back-to-back. Uh, lo- loser winner uh, head coaches because he lost with the Giants in the next year he won with the Dolphins in his, in Super Bowls. Remember he was a head well, coach. He lost uh, with the Baltimore Colts against Joe Namath. Right. He, he he coached the Baltimore Colts and they won several. Uh, but then he he went he was hired by the Dolphins and and he came back the first time he made the Super Bowl he lost to the Dallas Cowboys but then he he won the next two Super Bowls. Yeah, he co- he coached the Colts when Namath beat him. And then they fired yep. they fired him, I guess, as a result of that loss. And he came yeah, to but the Dolphins picked him up properly, and uh, he got him to the Super Bowl pretty quickly. And the first time he got to, the Dolphins got to the Super Bowl, they lost to the Cowboys. The Cowboys had lost the year before. Yeah, so twenty. And uh, but then they they won the next two, including nineteen seventy two season, uh, going undefeated. And yeah. I'm a Chicago Bear fan, so in nineteen eighty five. The Chicago Bears won the Super Bowl, and they lost only one game that year. It was a Monday night game in Miami. And I was there. And, oh, huh? Okay, well, I was watching it. When I saw that game... Well, you guys started I, Fuller instead of... Uh, what's his name? You yeah, start- McMahon, yeah. That, yeah, that, yeah. yeah, you should have started McMahon, even though he was injured. But you started Fuller, and we got... And it, the Bears, you know, the Bears have had great middle linebackers going back to Dick Butkus and Mike Singletary and Erlacher, and they've never had any good quarterbacks. So, but when the Bears lost that game, I knew they were a good team, and I knew they'd go all the way. Cause, and you know, in those days, the, the Dolphins were a great team. Well, Marino, Marino unfortunately, Marino, under Shula, was never really given the backfield support he deserved. And, uh, or the offensive line or the defense. Yeah, that's the way it goes. But, 
Well, the offensive line was pretty secure in terms of he never got sacked. There was seasons that that Marino wouldn't be sacked. One sack, two sacks a season, which is unheard of in the NFL. But he never had that ground game. So you had to, you know, he lived and died by his sword his whole his whole career. And unfortunately, you have to blame it on Shula. Or the general manager. But not tonight. We're not blaming Shula tonight. But I will point out small world. I was at that Chicago Bear games also, the Bears. And all the old Dolphins from the 72 team came out to help right. and make sure that they, they right. won that game and pulled out all the tricks, whatever needed Absolutely. to be done. Yep. Yeah. yeah, man, to this very day, remember, uh, uh, Brady actually won the, uh, beat our record but lost the Super Bowl, so it's it's right. un- it's official, unofficial. Because Brady went, what, 18-1, and one, he lost the Super Bowl. Yeah, but they, they lost the Super Bowl. It was a great game, too. But they had gone 17-0. and 0. <laughs> How about them, Adam? We're gonna we're gonna segue over to another kind of game. All right. So God bless. Uh, God bless yeah, Don Shula. Yeah. May he rest in peace. I think it's appropriate yeah. that he died the same month as my mom. So how uh, how about them apples? Uh, that's quite an honor, quite frankly. So let's move. Uh, let's move on to Governor Morris. And um, I'm happy to first of all that he wasn't. He was just a protege of Robert Morris, but there was no relationship. Right? There was no bloodline. Right, so that's an interesting point. So the way I want to break it down tonight, and I'll come back to that in a second, Manny, is I want to give an overview, so this way the, the listeners know what, the, what they're looking for. So an overview about why we're going to talk about him, why is he an interesting and important guy. Then we'll talk about his personal background, and then we'll talk about what he accomplished in the Constitutional Convention, including the preamble. And then I want you to save some time at the end, because I've got some great stories and some great quotes about him when we talk about his diary. And interestingly, we've talked about him on other nights, and we talked about France. This is going back a year when the the, the, the fire took place in, the, in uh, I'm trying to think the name of the church. The uh, Help me out, guys. Um, Notre, Dame. Notre Dame. Right. When Notre yeah. Dame burned, we did an hour talking about people who've been in France uh, in the founding generation, and he was the ambassador to France. We spent a lot of time in Paris. So we talked about him then. We also talked about him another weekend or another week when we talked about executive privilege because there was an important development in the evolution of executive privilege, which related to his correspondence as the ambassador to Paris, as the friend, when he was writing back to, to Washington. So that, uh, you know, we've talked about him on many nights. But tonight we're going to focus on Gruber Morris, who I'm describing, and it's not just me, as the forgotten founder. Why do I say that? You know, everybody is familiar with him. They're almost legendary. Washington, everybody knows Washington and never tells a lie. They, you know, he's got these images. Uh, Hamilton, everybody knows Hamilton from the musical. Everybody knows John Adams and Madison as the father of the Constitution, right? But uh, very few people, if you ask the average man or woman, they know Gruber Morris, and they're going to look at you. How, how did he get a name like that? Okay, so this gets back to part of Manny's question. What's his background? And let's, let's talk about it, because it's very interesting. And he is, in many ways, very different than a lot of the other founding fathers. So he was a lawyer. So what, in terms of his background, his mother was French Huguenot. And interestingly, we've talked about how Hamilton's mother was French Huguenot. So they both spoke French, which was a benefit to be able to speak multiple languages. In fact, yep. Morris is extremely talented. He's like, this is a guy that's writing poetry in different languages. Uh, and we'll talk about some of his talents. And he has multiple talents. So his mother is French Huguenot. And people you know, will remember that the French Huguenots are Protestants out of France who were discriminated against the religious minority that were horribly treated going back to Louis XIV, kicked out of France. And there are some similarities between the Jews and the French Huguenots, the way they, you know, wound up having to leave. And many of them came to the Caribbean, which is Hamilton's mother's story, and, you know, Hamilton's grandmother mm-hmm. and grandparents on one side. So his other side, though, was Welsh. And we talked one evening about Cromwell and the British Civil War. We talked about this time period when Britain underwent the Roman Revolution, and they were placed and deposed the king, which is interesting how that circles around, because that's going to be a topic for tonight. But uh, the story is that his grandfather and great-great-grandparents uh, were involved on the side of Oliver Cromwell and were rewarded. So they were given land in America, and uh, they're effectively aristocracy. So when, when I talk about the other founding fathers, Washington very wealthy, right? But Washington politically was not a... Well, you know, someone who controlled Virginia. You know, in his county and in his area, you know, until he becomes president, he's a lot, very well respected as a military leader, right? But during the time of the colonial period, he was not the highest echelons of government within the colonies. And the same idea with the other founders. You may have plantation owners or slave owners who had a lot of power, influence, and money, but none of them controlled the reins of power when King, King George the Third and King George the Second were around. But Morris, his father, and his grandfather, 
grandfather and others who were in his family, there were a political dynasty in the colonies. And some people refer to him as aristocratic, and that can be one of the criticisms that he was aristocratic. And talk he about was what from New York? Right. So his family's estate, which owned a lot of land, and the people are familiar with New York City, there are five boroughs, the borough on top of Manhattan is the Bronx. So his family's estate is north of the Harlem River, and this is the South Bronx. And uh, there's an area there called Morrisania, because the Morris estate, and they own land in New Jersey. In fact, one of the uncles and one of the grandfathers was a governor of New Jersey. So no other founding father had that degree of the political influence and power. And this gets to um, the last name. So the last name was the Welsh name, not the French Huguenot name, but he is not related, which is Manny's point. He's not related to one of the wealthiest founders who was Robert Morris. So people, and they worked together, interestingly, but Gruber Morris and Robert Morris were not related, uh, at least in terms of their families. I guess if you go far back enough, maybe they were. Well, Robert yeah. Morris was from uh, Pennsylvania? Right. Robert Morris is Pennsylvania, and Gruber Morris was from New York, but he actually mm-hmm. spent a lot of time in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania. The other point okay. I wanted to make about his background is, as I said, he's not a legend, right? And he's an interesting guy from the standpoint of he's very colorful, and we'll get into some of that tonight and save time at the end, right? And also, maybe even we could do two, two weeks or two shows on him. But here, here's a nice little quote. He loved good wine, good cheer, and good company. And I've got several books that I have, and I'd like to point out that Washington, there's a biography written of Washington pretty much every couple months, you know, four biographies a, month, a year. So there's no shortage of material on Washington. But there are only eight biographies that have ever been written on Gruber Morris, including a biography by Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, the president, right? Teddy Roosevelt was a historian, and he wrote, a, you know, you have to pick and choose who do you want to write about. Teddy Roosevelt writes about Gruber Morris. So that's a forgotten biography. So there are only a handful of biographies about him. And the one thing we're going to be referring to is Gruber Morris, gentleman revolutionary. Again, the emphasis on gentleman revolutionary by Richard Brookheiser. I also have another one by Gruber Morris on the American Revolution. This is by Mintz. And also his diaries, if we have time to talk about his diaries, are extraordinary because he spent a lot of time in France. And he was, he had his fingers in front of his feet, if you will, on two revolutions. He's involved with the American Revolution, obviously. And then he's, as I said, ringside seats to the French Revolution. And his diary talks about the players and what's going on as the French Revolution degrades into the terror. Does, it, does, it, does the diary ever talk about him trying to get the king out before he was beheaded? So, and he's involved with intrigues in Paris, and this gets to many, there's all kinds of interesting stuff. And I emailed and I've spoken by email with the, the professor who edited and wrote, his, not wrote, but, you know, compiled his, his diaries, uh, because she was willing to write back to me. And this had to do with last week, when I've spent a lot of time over the last month or so on what I call the Hamilton authorship thesis. And here's, I want to mention to everybody, uh, you know, go to the website if you want to listen to, which is maybe you're doing now, or the podcasts on WSQS. The Statutes and Stories Radio Hour, but also there's the Statutes and Stories website, which is my website, where we, we take these primary sources, diaries and letters and laws and statutes, and we, we use them to tell history, to teach history using the materials. So last week we were talking about the cover letter, and I don't want to go through it again, these people can listen to it, but we talked about the cover letter to the Constitution, and when the Constitution was mailed, if you will, or delivered from Philadelphia, where it was written at the Constitutional Convention Independence Hall, it was delivered to New York, which is where Congress met back then, the Continental Congress met in New York, or you could call it the Confederation Congress, because it was under the Articles of Confederation, so it's the Confederation Congress. So when the Congress, when the Constitution was delivered, it had a cover letter, which last week I referred to as the forgotten cover letter. So a lot of historians generally assume that Gruber Morris wrote the cover letter because Gruber Morris is referred to as the penman of the Constitution. So let me back up for a second. Uh, the, the father of the Constitution, and people throw around these titles all the time, but who is generally referred to as having the most influence on the Constitution for various reasons, the father of the Constitution in quotes. Who do you want to shoot out as the father of the Constitution? His name starts with an M, his last name? It was Madison. Madison. It was Madison. Right. Madison. So Madison is, uh, understandably, everyone agrees, Madison is the father of the Constitution. But Gruber Morris is the penman of the Constitution because the final draft, or the penultimate draft, 
before they made a couple of handful of changes towards the end. But the final draft of the Constitution was Morris taking the 20, I think it was 23 articles that were all over the map and combining them together and making sense of them and, and making them have rhythm and style and fit together and, and repackage them. That's the polish on the Constitution. So he didn't rewrite the Constitution. He just organized it. And that was the last committee, this committee on style, Hamilton, Madison, and Gruber Morris, Rufus King and, and Johnson were on that committee, and the job of rewriting or finalizing the Constitution was, was handed to, to Group Namar. So we talked about that last week. So this is who we're dealing with tonight. We're dealing with the penman of the Constitution, who was an aristocrat, and let's talk a little bit more about his family and his interesting background. And then at the end, again, we'll save time for some just great quotes from this guy and about this guy. So let's see. I want you to get to know him, not just for what he did at the Constitution, but because of his character. He's a human, as opposed to the other founding fathers that are sort of idols that are up on the platform, right? So he's very witty, and this is a copying from the, the sleeve of one of the books. He's a witty, peg-legged ladies' man. So, Manny, you're going to like this guy. When I say well, I kind of like so, that. Oh, peg-legged and a ladies' man. That's, that's interesting. So he lost one of his legs. He's in his mid-20s. It was a carriage accident in Philadelphia, and his leg had to be amputated below the knee. So, you know, and this is after the war. So, you know, he's known at the time of the Constitutional Convention for hobbling in with, with a peg leg, right? So, you know, you would easily recognize him. He's very tall, and I'll give some stories about how tall he was and, and why that mattered. So, um, you know, he's witty. He's a character when you look at him. And when I talk about the carriage accident, there are other stories that maybe it really wasn't a carriage accident. Maybe he was jumping out of the window of one of the houses because he did not get married until he was 57 and he had a kid when he was 61 he had one child so he, he lived an extraordinary life including the time when he was in paris and he left lovers in multiple continents uh, and the diary goes into lurid details about his his escapades but also oh, he gives that, so he gives details in his diary what's up oh yeah he gives and his wife and i'll tell you who he wound up marrying but the uh, portions of the diary are deleted so what they've done at the library of congress and this is melanie mitchell the historian who put together his diary uh, you know they've used spectroscopy however you pronounce it spectroscopy to try to look at uh, you know even though that some of the language is crossed off and it's always dealing with sex when language is crossed out of the diary so who would have done that was it morris or was it his wife who was a randolph who did that but we'll, we'll talk about that she was rudolph randolph's family so the randolph who was the first attorney general and randolph who was uh, a very prominent in virginia the randolph family from virginia uh, one of the cousins of that family uh, and it's a, we could spend an hour talking about it, and I don't know all the specifics, but basically she was shunned from the family, and she was accused of infanticide of having killed the of her children, but yet the people who accused her had issues of their own, and it was a complex family situation in, in the Randolph family. But long story short, she's working, you know, this is very wealthy originally from a very prominent family, and then she's cast off. And she winds up becoming the housekeeper for Gruner Morris, and he's in his upper 50s. And long story short, he winds up marrying her. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about uh, that towards the end of the hour. But I want to give more background about Gruner Morris. So we mentioned how he's missing a leg. And when he's 14, he had an accident where most of the flesh on his arm was burned off, and he almost lost his arm. So this is a guy that later loses a leg, and, uh, you know, is incapacitated on his, I don't know if it's the right or the left side, so he keeps his arm covered. So, you know, he, he'd seen, uh, you know, a lot of issues over the course time of his life. Uh, and I said he's an eyewitness to two revolutions, right, but he kept his personality and he kept his wit and his charm. So I, I mentioned that he comes from Morrisania, which is in the South Bronx, right? I, let me talk a little bit more about his family. So when we talk about the most famous early First Amendment case, this is the John Zenger case, and this is dealing with is truth a defense, and can the media be prosecuted for printing the truth? And his grandfather was the subject and was involved in that case, the Zenger case. So he appreciates the First Amendment. So that was one of his big issues, freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And interestingly, at the Constitutional Convention, not only does he write the final version or the penultimate version of the Constitution, he gave more speeches at the Constitution than any other delegate. So here you're it's not amazing, and he was willing to succeed over the War of 1812. That's unreal. The, so, talk about contradictions. My God. He's full of contradictions, Manny, and maybe we'll have time to talk about 1812. Well, and Go ahead, Yeah, we should talk about that sometimes. There was, as, was, as I mentioned, there was a convention in Hartford, Connecticut, to secede uh, because of the War of 1812. So it was very contentious. 
You know what? We're going to have to do a second night on this subject because I got a lot of material. Well, and I and still want to. I want a whole show just on why he chose the Spanish silver dollar to coin arc money in comparison that was, to. That was uh, the currency in North America then. It was. Uh, yeah, but you guys didn't believe any of that until you read it. Come on, you guys are acting. You're acting like you knew it all along. You had to. You had to depend on Mac on the Rock for the, that intel. And I'm, I knew it. Now I have to Man, give us the 10 minute warning so we can do some quotes at the end and give us a 12 minute warning. Right now you've got a 45 minute warning. You can start quoting right now. <laughs> okay. So well, let me throw out some questions for you, which are not fair questions, but just so the audience can try to play along with us. So I mentioned that he gave more speeches at the Constitutional Convention, which meets basically mid-May, toward the end of May is when they finally have the quorum, until September 17th, which is the last day of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. So he speaks more than anybody else. Take a guess, which is not fair, how many times he spoke, which was the record at the Constitutional Convention. And whatever number you throw out, it's going to be double or triple it. Wow. Uh, spoke, I'm going to just say uh, 25 times. So from May to September? May to September. Yeah, 25 times. That's a good number. No, 90 90? 173 times. Oh, my freaking God. The next closest is James Wilson from Pennsylvania, which is 168, and Madison at 161. So he's hands down speaks the, the most of anybody, and he had to leave to go back to his had some business to take care of in New York. So he left for three weeks. So even though he's gone for you know almost a month, he still gets the record for speaking the most. And that may have been one of the reasons why they gave him the job of rewriting the Constitution, because he was very popular, he was very witty, he was very easy to and, understand. And his, and his positions were known. And he was very clear. In fact, uh, some of the quotes I'm going to give, this is a guy who was adamant against slavery. He spoke out repeatedly and passionately against slavery and in favor of freedom of religion. That Again, he comes from a religious background where he's a minority. So, uh, you know, he was all interested in protecting freedom of religion, making sure that there is a, you know, you can't have religious tests. And that's built into the Constitution. So I talked about how he's very involved with the Constitution. He's not the father of the Constitution, but he's the pen of the Constitution. Uh, we'll see what else. I want to tell you that, you know what, when you look at the different blocks at the Constitutional Convention, you've got the nationalists, you have some of the careful how you want to describe them, the anti-federalists, some of whom leave the convention. But he, he's online with Hamilton and Madison, that for the reasons I'm going to describe tonight, they understood that under the articles, the country was beginning to come apart at the seams, that eventually Spain and France would start picking off, or Britain would start picking off uh, and separating the colonies into different regions, and, and they were fighting with each other. So he understood with Washington and Hamilton and Madison that we wanted a strong federal government that could hold, make, make unify the country. And that's going to relate to the preamble, and we'll get a chance to talk about the preamble. They also want to talk that there's a famous painting, and if you go to the website, statutesandstories.com, you can see the famous Christie painting of the signing of the Constitution. And that, that painting, if I'm not mistaken, is in the, in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. So he's standing right behind, behind Alexander Hamilton. So Gouverneur Morris was a close friend of Hamilton. They're both New Yorkers. They have a lot in common. They work together well, and they're on the same team. And it's not a surprise, then, that Morris is standing right behind Alexander Hamilton in that famous picture of the signing of the Constitution. And he also, um, also spoke at his funeral. At, say that again, Manny? Yeah, that governor also spoke at Hamilton's funeral. That's right. So the address or the eulogy at Hamilton's funeral in 1804, July probably 14th, you know, he, he dies in the duel in, in Manhattan. And uh, the family, uh, it's a horrible story, but he was on, he was at Hamilton's deathbed. He was very close with Hamilton. And Hamilton's wife, this is Eliza, you know, breaks down crying, you know, saying, you know, Gruvner, please, I want you to take care of the family because Hamilton was not rich. He had a lot of debt. And, and that's what Gruvner Morris did. Gruvner Morris raised money to pay off some of the Hamilton debts, and he took care of his estate for Hamilton. So, you know, this is a guy, and at the end, I want to give you a quote, because Manny mentioned the, about you know, his relationship with Hamilton. And this is a guy that, you know, has your back. You know, he, he looks out for people. Uh, he's very wealthy, and he can help look after people, but he, he's, he's not just looking out for himself. So um, there's a famous portrait and a bust of Gruber Morris. And, and many, and, and Ed, you know this from New York City, when you go to where, where Wall Street is, there's a big statue of Washington with his hands out, and it yep. was near uh, to where the, the old the location of, of where the... Federal where the Hall. Federal Hall, right. Yep. So that statue of Washington 
uh, was done by, and there are various statues of Washington. There's a famous bust of Washington by Jean, and I'm horrible with French, Antoine Houdin, a very famous French um, you know, sculptor. And he used Gruvner Morris, because Gruvner Morris was a similar height to Washington. And okay. apart from the fact that he's got the peg leg, you know, you could confuse him for Washington. So just imagine, this is a very tall guy. Uh, you know, he sort of looks like Washington, and that's why he's used as the body double in that, in that statue of Washington. So that's the body that was used for that famous statue, and that was done in around 1789 when he was in Paris. So that's mm-hmm. the overview of who we're talking about tonight. And just a little bit more about his personal background. So I mentioned how his, uh, his father started a very influential in colonial government. Uh, his father, I think, was a Supreme Court judge in New York. Um, but his father dies when he's 12. And his father then uh, actually had two marriages. His, his, his father's first wife dies, gets remarried, and then he is the only son of the second marriage. So he comes from a wealthy family, but he's the, as I said, only son. Uh, there are other older brothers who are half-brothers, and you got to realize that, you know, do you want to rely on the family inheritance or do you want to you know, independently make do for yourself? And that's what he does. He becomes a very successful lawyer. And, uh, you know, there's friction within the family because the family was not happy that his father got remarried and then had another kid. So that's the background that he comes from. He's the youngest son, but he's not relying on his inheritance. We talked about, I think he asked about his surname. So his mother's name, the last name is Gruvener, and they gave him as his first name, Gruvener. And what they did with some of the other brothers, or half-brothers, is they would give the other last names on the mother's side became the first name. So his, his, uh, one of his brothers uh, you know, has another name that's really a last name, but that's the first name. And one of his other brothers, Lewis Morris, who was a half-brother, was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. So imagine you know, having in your family a signer of the Declaration of Independence, but yet there are colonial governors in your family and judges in your family at the highest level of being a judge. And one of his other brothers becomes a loyalist and fights for the British as a major general in the British Army. So imagine that family where you have a signer of the Declaration and another half-brother who's fighting and leading the British, and his mother is a loyalist also. And after the Battle of, uh, pretty sure the Battle of Brooklyn, Washington gets thrown out of New York City and almost captured, right? That could have been a horrible defeat. His mother turns over the estate to the British to use as a headquarters and to use for their purposes. So his mother and his other half-brother you know, are on one side, and his other brother and Governor Morris are you know, patriots. So that, that gives you some dynamics of the family. So uh, they're, they're not in unison, you say. Some, some support the British and, and some supported freedom. Well, uh, Benjamin Franklin's son was the British governor of New Jersey. Wow. Yep, so there were a lot of family divisions. It was almost a civil war in many respects. It was. So that, yeah, I would say it was a civil war. I would, yep. I would characterize it as such. Yeah, and Adams, and Adams represented uh, the Boston Tea Party during the Boston Tea Party. So he represented the British in that, in that legal case before he became... Uh, a revolutionary. Well, he, he represented uh, the British he, soldiers in the Boston Massacre. No. Well, he, he's representing the truth, and he's representing... He's no, he was representing the, the tea company who had its tea thrown into the sea. Oh, okay. All right. Fine. Yep. Yeah, he represented that company in the, in the, in the legal case, because obviously they sued uh, because they threw their stuff in the sea, into the sea, and John Adams represented them. Okay. How about that, Matt? Yeah. Morris is a signer of the Declaration. So Morris's half brother is a signer. That's Lewis Morris. Yep. And uh, and Manny, there are two separate cases. Maybe we'll do a show on those. But there's the. Well, I think what Ed was mentioning was that the the Boston Massacre. John Adams represents the British soldiers. And Ed, what you're talking? I'm sorry, the other way around. Oh yeah, that's true too. That, yeah. So Adams was very involved as a lawyer in the sub cases. So and we're going to talk about Morris, who was also a lawyer. So what does Morris do? And this is before the war breaks out. He's working as a lawyer. But 1775, he gets selected, and he went to the same school where Hamilton would eventually go to, at the time, King's College. So he gets elected to the New York Provincial Congress. So, you know, when the, the things are heating up for the British, he gets elected to the New York legislature, the Provincial Congress. And, you know, when you take that kind of a position, you're basically a traitor. And we know he's a traitor because his, my, his mother and his brother, his half-brother, are working closely with the British, and, you know, he's siding with the, loyal, with the patriots, not the loyalists. 
So in 1776, as his brother is working on the Declaration, his half-brother, he's working and drafting the New York Constitution. So Gruppner Morris is, is recognized and allowed and asked to help. And that's important when you draft a Constitution. So he's involved with drafting the New York Constitution, right? And also, uh, later on, when the Articles of Confederation are written, He's a delegate to the Continental Congress, and he's involved with the article. So this is a guy that, as we said, his brother is involved with the Declaration, and then Gruvner Morris is involved with the New York Constitution, writing that on the team that does it, and he's also a signer of the Articles of Confederation. And not, I think it's only about five or six at the Constitutional Convention were also delegates to the article. So Gruvner Morris has got all kinds, and he's a very young guy. Right? He's not some of the older founding fathers. So at a very young age, he's elected in New York to the New York provincial legislature. I also want to mention, and this was one of Manny's questions, that um, remember when, the, when you had under the Articles, you didn't have different branches of government. You only had the Congress. You didn't have Article 2, which was the executive, and Article 3, which was the judiciary. Everything was under the, the monolithic Congress, the Continental Congress or the Confederation Congress. So, you know, how did they actually run the government? And the answer is they didn't really run the government. But they did have committees, and they did appoint Robert Morris as the head of finance. And then Hamilton would basically replace Robert Morris as the first Treasury Secretary. And then Robert Morris had as his assistant, and his title was Assistant Superintendent of Finance. That's Robert Morris was the, you know, the superintendent of finance. And Gruber Morris, no relation, is the assistant superintendent of finance. So he's got his fingers in the, the weeds of, of trying to manage the debt and the finances and the taxation for the Congress, which was a job which was almost impossible because all that Congress could do is to make requisitions. A requisition is where they go to the 13 states and they ask for money, and they say, this is what we need, and the states would blow them off and not give them the needed money to pay the bills. So, you know, they face this uphill battle where Congress had no power and went begging every year to the states, and the states, some better than others, that would or would not comply, usually would not comply. So that's that was his background and how he was involved on the finance side, working with Robert Morris, and they were both businessmen. I'm also going to mention to you that the others who had these similar views. Well, I also uh, I also wanted to point out that what I liked about Morris is he thought the senators would should be in there for life, and 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 that Congress should uh, only be elected based on how much they paid in taxes. <laughs> I got, that was very cool. All right. Manuel, the way I want to build on that is that you know, when I say he was an aristocrat and he was conservative, and we could debate what that means, he understood, having worked as the assistant superintendent of finance, how unworkable the system was. And he's realizing that you're getting mob violence. It's a Shays Rebellion. You're getting situations where, and he would see this later on, which is ironic in Paris, about how deadly the mobs could be. And I'll give some examples from the diary. But, you know, he understood, as did Washington and as did Henry Knox, who became the Secretary of War, that, uh, you know, things were not tenable and it was it's going to get worse if you don't fix it. We're going to lose the value of what we accomplished with this. We won the revolution, but uh, it's going to spin out of control. So these were the nationalists. And when I call him a conservative, he's a nationalist with Washington, Hamilton, Knox, who wants a strong federal government to solve problems. And he's a pragmatist. So he wants federal authority. And in the Senate, because he's, an, when I say aristocrat, he thought, as you pointed out, Manny, he thought that you know smart people who've been highly educated, who have things to lose, and uh, you know, know what they're talking about, about, that's who he conceived in the Senate, which is his aristocratic tendency, as opposed to a Jefferson who was more democratic in a way with regard to his tendencies. So I also want to point out that um, we talk about religious toleration. He's all about adding religious rights into the New York Constitution and into the U.S. Constitution. And I want to skip ahead now. We talk about the Articles. And after he was defeated in 1779, he wasn't reelected to Congress. What does he do? And the answer is comes a businessman and does quite well as a businessman. And when he was working with Congress, the position he was put into is, uh, and this is how he develops a good relationship with Washington, uh, you know, Congress wanted to find out what's going on, and they appointed a handful of members of Congress, the company of the Congress, to, to go to Valley Forge and to find out, really, is this, how bad are things? What can we do to help? Or do we need to help? And Gruber Moore saw the, the soldiers were starving to death, and uh, you know it was atrocious the way they were being treated. They weren't getting supplies, and this is not the way you treat your heroes who are fighting to defend your country. So he became a big proponent of getting the troops what they needed and providing you know, dedicated resources and training and equipment. So he became a nationalist. He wants a strong federal government that can get, get the job done and win the war. 
So we, now we're going to skip ahead to the Constitutional Convention. And uh, what do we call him? We said he's the penman of the Constitution. He's on the committee on style. But I think what he's most famous for is the preamble. And I want to read you from the preamble. And I'm going to do it in a way, I hope, that you'll see. And before I read it, let me tell you what he inherited. So the prior committee that had put together the Constitution, and it went through multiple you know, committees, but the prior version, if you even want to call it a preamble, was basically just a, an opening statement that uh, the states of New Hampshire from north to south and uh, you know, Massachusetts and Rhode Island and you know, go down the list. Uh, so it didn't originally start with the people. It was we, the states of blank, blank, blank. And it just ended with, you know, establish the Constitution. So that was the way the Constitution opened when you look at the prior version. And what he does, and this is, you know, it's, it's critical language when you're trying to form a government that people can rally around. So what does he change the preamble to say? And people can you know, say this along with me, uh, you know, because you know, the preamble is the beginning of the Constitution. It's huge. So the preamble starts, and this is all Morris. We, the people of the United States, and before I keep reading it, what you're going to see here is there are two rhymes, and I'll, I'll try to rhyme the words, but you also have two alliterations. So it's poetic when you listen to this paragraph. And what is an alliteration? The, the letter P, the P sound repeats. Uh, so people, uh, perfect, provide, promote, posterity. So that's the alliteration. And then you'll have the rhymes, which are insure and secure. Insure well, uh, and let me explain that further. The, the double... The double... I don't understand, uh, so I'm assuming the audience doesn't either. Uh, you said that the, the the use of the double P was for what purpose? It's just the way it sounds. So instead of having you know, bland language describing what a government does, he uses active words that are you know, not to be words. They're active verbs, the verbs that they ring, they bind the, the document together. So I'm, I'm going to try to read it to do justice to what he accomplishes with the preamble. And then Lincoln, I'm going to point out to you guys, Lincoln, when he writes the Gettysburg Address, builds on some of these ideas that are in the preamble. right? And, and Ed, I know you, know you know a lot about the Gettysburg Address, but the, the key at the end of the Gettysburg Address that Lincoln builds on from the preamble is that government of the people by the people, for the people, this is the Gettysburg Address, shall not perish from the earth. That's building on what Morris did in the preamble. So let me read you the preamble, and this will take me, you know, 30 seconds to read it correctly. So how does the Constitution start? And this is all Gouverneur Morris. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, these are the active verbs, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, active verbs, provide for the common defense, these are P's, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, another P, to ordain and establish the Constitution or this Constitution for the United States of America. And what's happening here is this is profound, right? Instead of a list of states, it's we the people instead of the names of the states. We the people of the United States who are forming the Constitution. And there are all kinds of practical reasons why it made sense to do that. But he's unifying in one document, the opening phrase. I mean, it's probably the most, you know, kids in school, we the people, everyone knows that's the Constitution. That's Gruber Morris, right? So he's using rhymes, he's using alliteration, he's using active verbs describing, and you can't argue with this, what is the job of a government? Why do you have a government? It's to establish justice, to form a more perfect union, to provide for the common defense. That's If you can't protect your country, you don't have a country, right? Uh, to promote the general welfare, we could debate what that means. Secure the blessings of liberty for, and it's looking ahead, looking to the future. The blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. You know, ordaining, I don't want to call it religious, but we're ordaining and we're establishing. It's the people who are. So anyway, we could do a whole hour about the preamble. So, other than the preamble and the final draft of the Constitution, he is recognized for his powerful and succinct prose, which is one of his gifts. And that's why last week, when we talked about the cover letter of the Constitution, the cover letter of the Constitution has a lot of redundant. In it. And it, that's more of a political document where you're trying to sell the Constitution. That's the, that's the cover letter. And the cover letter is not written in the way with the, with the poetry and the alignment of, of the Constitution, which is one of the reasons why I give that Morris did not write the cover letter. Morris wrote the Constitution. He had enough on his hands to write the Constitution. All right, so other than the Constitutional Convention, because I don't want to bore everybody with the Constitution, what happens later in his life? And um, we've got at least half an hour, Manny. No, yeah, you've got now, you got 27 minutes, no, 21 minutes. 
right, so to, to give some idea of other things that he did, um, you know, we're going to talk about and we're going to spend a lot of time when he's in France. But when he returned to New York, and people who are familiar with Manhattan, and I love Manhattan, it has a very systematic grid. And he was involved in setting forth the street grid and with the way that the streets intersect at right angles. And we can talk why you want to do that because it saves it's the most efficient way to have streets as opposed to Washington, D.C., where you have these circular uh, roundabouts and you have uh, you know, wide streets that uh, we could debate about how you design a city. But he was involved in putting in place the systematic and logical street grid. He helped design it. Also, the Erie Canal. So when he came back from Europe, he realized that uh, we can do something similar. He saw, I think it was in Scotland, where they were using canals. And he realized that the Hudson River Valley can connect up with, and, and oh, Ed, you're, you spent time in New York. But, uh, the Erie Canal was a big public public works project that you know was able to take the produce and the farming, bring the wealth into that, that part of the West and have that come into New York through that Erie Canal, which made transportation so much easier to get across the mountain. So, you know, he, he's a genius. He wasn't just involved as a lawyer, but, but he's a businessman, and we can talk about that later. Um, let me give you some quotes from you know, his relationship. And this is a quote from Roosevelt, because I mentioned Roosevelt wrote a biography of Morris. So this is Teddy Roosevelt saying that he represented, meaning Morris, represented, quote, better than any other man, the clear-headed, practical statesman who is genuinely devoted to the cause of constitutional freedom. So that's coming from Roosevelt. And well, so I want to mention, let's talk about the diary, right? Because people, if you've been listening to what he does in his life, he doesn't get married until much later. So um, he's appointed, actually, before he becomes the ambassador to France, um, remember how he worked closely with Robert Morris? And Robert Morris had was a big involved with trade and with business and banking. So Robert Morris needed someone on the ground in Paris and in Europe as his business partner. So Robert Morris chooses Grubner Morris to be his man on the ground in Paris to help out with business deals, make sure things are getting done correctly. So he originally goes to Paris to do business. And he'd never traveled outside of the United States. So this is an opportunity, and he's still in his 30s, you know, to go explore Europe and, you know, see all the things that his parents and his grandparents all knew. Because if you were an aristocrat, you got to go on the tour. You got to see the sights of Europe. So this is a chance for him to, you know, after the war to go see Europe. So he does to conduct business. And then when we need a, you know, after the Constitution was written, Washington and Jefferson was the first minister to France. And after Jefferson finishes and comes home, after Jefferson is the minister to France, then Grivner Morris is appointed by Washington because he's already there. He knows everybody in Paris. He's very influential in Paris. So that's why he gets appointed to be the ambassador. But he writes this phenomenal diary. And I think the reason he started writing it is because, you know, just the, the way to remember all these great things that you're going to see in Europe. And this is before the French Revolution. So he knows this is something. I think, it was, just, I think it was just chronicling the girls. And you're going to see this, right? Yeah. So, and France in the 1780s was very different than America. And we mentioned this on other evenings. You know, if you're in Boston, you know, uh, I, I would joke that, uh, you know, the Adams family, meaning John Adams and Sam Adams, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're more Protestant in their ethic. I'll, I'll be careful with that. Whereas in Paris, um, yeah, the, no debauchery, way, the, the debauchery was out of control. Right. And, you know, you had a king, and the king gets a lot of additional things because he's the king, and things were more acceptable in Paris with prostitutes and uh, and, and also with politics. You had, and, and this is one of the things that a lot of the historians like about Morris, is that, yes, he enjoyed the company of women, but he also respected women. And you had these salons in Paris near the Louvre, and the Louvre wasn't always a museum. The Louvre was apartments for aristocrats and the retainers of the king. And you had a certain degree of freedom that these French aristocratic women in, in high society could talk about politics and could do reading and writing and, and humanities. So, you know, he, he's, he's involved and appreciates women on multiple levels and really appreciates women on multiple levels. So let me give you some examples from the diary. So let's see, scholars it, it's a, and diplomatic historians of the French Revolution, you know, it, it's, it's an unusual and it's a unique way of looking into France to see what's happening. And he's there before the French Revolution starts. So he sees it, and he's also commenting on, as he begins to see things getting out of control, when the Estates General is called together. Uh, he, he, and there are wonderful quotes about how you know, he sees greatness 
that the, the king doesn't realize and Marie Antoinette doesn't realize what's going to be happening. He's able to read the tea leaves, and the king gets applause, and people are applauding the king initially, but uh, Marie Antoinette, who was not from France, I think she was from Austria, so Marie yeah. Antoinette, right, she gets all kinds of boos and hisses, and this is all in his diary about, you know, he's a witness to history in France as a the, you know, the, as the revolution begins to heat up, before it becomes a revolution, it, it started as a financial crisis. And we can talk about some of the things that happened. And, 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 and Manny, I know we're big fans of Lafayette. So Lafayette mm-hmm. is the American general who's a very young leader who comes to help during the Revolutionary War. But when things start spiraling out of control in France, because you know, uh, Lafayette uh, was involved with, uh, everybody knows about the Bastille and the storming of the Bastille, and Lafayette's in a dangerous position where he side with the radicals, the aside with the king, um, you know, Lafayette comes from French royalty and French, you know, I'll call royalty, but French aristocracy. So Lafayette's in a dangerous position. Eventually he gets put in jail. And if you are the minister, and this is the conundrum, right? You're the American ambassador to France. Back then they didn't call him ambassador. They called him plenipotentiary. I'll figure out how to pronounce it. But uh, the, you know, the old name for what you used to be called if you were an ambassador. And it would take, you know, six weeks or so for, for a letter to get from one side of the ocean to the other to speak to Washington, to speak to Paris, right? So, you know, what do you do if you're the ambassador? And after the after the killing and the guillotine and they, once they execute Louis, the question becomes, and we talked about this in other nights, what should the position of America be? The Democrat-Republicans, this is Jefferson and Madison, they wanted to support the French. And Hamilton and Washington, their position was, uh, you know, let's stay neutral, but if we have to be involved, let's support the you know, it gets complicated, um, you know, and then we had treaties with France. France helped us during the Revolutionary War, and we wouldn't have won the Revolutionary War potentially without French assistance. So we had binding treaty obligations to France. But once yeah. France executes the king, you know, what's our obligation? So I want to read you what he writes. And this is a letter, not from his diary, that he writes to Jefferson, who was the prior ambassador to France. And this is, you know, the difficult situation. What should he do? Do we, and all the other European countries, once the king was executed, they got out of there. But Morris stayed in Paris. And remember, we're a democratic country where we had a revolution. So should he side or not take a position at all with the revolutionaries or with the, with the king or the deceased king? So let me read you from his diary where he's writing to Jefferson. Here we go. And diplomatic historians and diplomats study Morris's writing, and you know that deals with executive privilege from another evening. So this is Morris writing to Jefferson, and this is right after the fall of, of Louis the Sixteenth after he's executed. So here it is. Going hence, however, we look like taking part against the late revolution. So he's deciding, you know, do, do I leave like the other diplomats from other European countries? Do I leave or do I stay? So he's saying, if I leave, it'll look like I'm taking part against the late revolution. If I leave, that shows America is not going to help the revolution. We're, we're, whatever I do, it's going to be symbolic. And I am not only unauthorized in this respect, but I am bound to suppose, so here he has to use his logic, I have to suppose that if the great majority of the nation, in other words, if the majority of the French people adhere to the new form, meaning the new form of government, uh, and that the United States should approve thereof, because in the first place, we have no right to prescribe to this country the government that they shall adopt. And next, because the basis of our own constitution is the indefensible right of the people to establish it. So let me say, do I leave like all the other diplomats, or do I stay? If I, if I take a position, that's signaling that America is taking a position. So he's in a difficult situation. And there's a story in the diary where he had gone out to dinner with some friends. And the body, and this is beginning to see the revolution, it hasn't fully started yet, but a, a, a French minister, uh, his body, his naked body, is, uh, his head arrives on a stake, is paraded through the streets, and his naked body is dragged through the streets. And then the body is brought to the son-in-law of this minister. Uh, they show the son and the family the body of the father, and then they decapitate. This is before the guillotine. They kill the, the, the other family member, the son or the son-in-law. So you know, he sees this in one of the salons you know, after he's having dinner while he's waiting for a carriage. And he writes in his diary, good God, what's going on with these people? Right? So he'd seen a revolution in America, but you see the French Revolution, and this gets into this issue of democracy run amok. is isn't democracy, it's mob violence. 
right? And he sees the French, you know, they've been controlled from the top down by a king and aristocrats who have basically suppressed the masses. And he's very fearful about what's going to happen as France begins. And he, he sees the writing on the wall as opposed to Jefferson and some of the other, you know, I won't call them Federalists, but the Democrat Republicans who are very idealistic about the French Revolution. But, you know, revolutions can be very deadly and bloody. And he, you know, his diary, and I'm going to give you some stories. Uh, so, you know, he, he was friendly with a lot of the, you know, the, the folks in Paris who eventually are going to be on the wrong side of the French Revolution, and the revolution turns on itself. So there is a story in the diary where, in the middle of the night, there's a knock on the door where the different tonight don't know the French, but the, you know, the commander of the district is knocking on the door. We have reports that there are guns in your house. And this is a, under the laws of war, you know, under the diplomatic laws, you're not supposed to go into a diplomatic, you know, if you're an ambassador, you have to be left alone. So the police officer or com commander is knocking on the door. We have reports that there are guns. So what does Morris do? So, you know, Morris, who speaks French very well, you know, basically says, well, I need your name. I need your supervisor's name. You have no right. I'm from a sovereign country. Uh, but Morris can't let them come into the house because he has, he has um, women and men who should not be in his house that he's trying to save. And the good news is that uh, he's able to bluster, or bluster and the bluff, and uh, you know, the, the officer leaves. The next day, the commander arrives and apologizes, this won't happen again, you know, these are crazy circumstances. But you know, he's, this is a guy that he's taking risk to himself by protecting those that are fleeing from, you know, from uh, you know, not having a good outcome. Right. There's also a story where, um, remember, he has a peg leg, and one day he's walking down the streets, and not everybody knows who he is. And the mob, you know, sees a well-dressed guy with money, and they come after him, uh, and they're going to try to hang him. And what does he do? He takes off his leg, and, uh, you know, he starts waving it in the air. He says, I'm a revolutionary from America. I fought for freedom in America. And, of course, the crowd then settles down and realizes, you know, that he's a hero, right? So he's in a dangerous place in Paris where anything can happen. Um, but at the same time, he's also enjoying Paris. And that's where the diary gets very interesting, because we, we mentioned uh, Talleyrand, who was a very famous French minister who was involved with the revolution. Uh, but Talleyrand uh, used to be a, a, a French priest and walks away from the French priesthood, because if you're, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was not supported by the revolution. The revolution was anti-aristocrat, it was anti-Catholic, and a lot of Catholic priests get killed during the French Revolution. So, uh, so Talleyrand leaves the church, um, but Talleyrand also has an affair with a woman, and Gouverneur Morris also among the mistresses that he has, and this is discussed in his diary. Let me turn on my light because it's getting dark, so I can see. But um, how much time are we working with Manny before we start reading from the diary? Now you got nine minutes. Nine, we have nine, nine minutes. minutes. All right, so let me give this story real quick. This is a quick one. So why don't you just start rattling? Why don't you just start rattling off quotes? Okay, I, I will do that. So uh, before I do some quotes, this is a real quick story. So here the story is, he's getting a message from one of the other American ambassadors in one of the other European countries. I don't know which country, maybe Germany or which, it doesn't matter. Uh, and he reads the letter, and this is what he writes back. He basically says, and remember, that dangerous time. And his diary entries get a lot shorter as he realizes what's going on, because he realizes that, you know, if his diary is confiscated, this could be dangerous for people that are mentioned in his diary. So he writes back to the other American diplomat from another European capital, and this is the quote, that comments on a government, you guys are going to love this, should not be trusted to a post office under the government's control. In other words, don't write me letters that are anti-French or potentially anti-French because the French are going to be reading these letters. I mean, that's common sense, right? So here's a nice quote about, uh, and remember, he had multiple relationships, so he doesn't get married until much later in life once he returns from Europe. So this is a quote from John Jay, and we spent uh, you know, hours talking about John Jay, another one of our favorite founding fathers. So John Jay is mentioning how, uh, you know, even though even though Gruvner Morris, you know, you, you don't know unless you see him walking. This is a guy that rides horses. This is a guy that's very active. You know, he, um, you know, he fishes and he, he, you know, he doesn't limit himself, even though he's lost a leg and he has a bad arm. So this is what Jay's mentioning that, um, let's see, John Jay writes that he wished Morris, quote, had lost something else other than his leg. And you can just imagine what John, John Jay is talking about, because some of the founding fathers criticized him for being a little bit loose when it comes to his morals, which you get to read if you see the diary. So here are some quotes. We, we did the preamble. And I want to talk about when, he, when does he get married? He gets married at age 57. He has his first child and only child when he's 61. 
And here's some quotes about him. He's very handsome. He had an imposing figure. But, quote, few men ever equaled his commanding bearing. So he's a guy that, you know, he's imposing. He's brilliant. He's, he writes poetry. He speaks multiple languages. And he was well known for enjoying female society. Right? And he respected women. And the diary makes that clear, that he treats women as equals. He doesn't treat them as uh, other adjectives. Um, so, you know, I mentioned how in the, in the diary there are portions of it that are blotted out, and it's not clear if it was Morris who did that or if it was uh, his well, wife. So are you implying that I should, like, have a diary because, you know, I speak multiple languages and I write poetry? I mean, what's going on here? It's a great idea, man. Just yeah. be careful that, you know, who's, who's the diary for? So here's another story, and I'm going to do some quotes. So there's a story involving Hamilton because he's good friends with Hamilton. And this may be apocryphal, meaning that it may be legend or it may be true. Maybe there's some truth to it. But the story is that um, Morris and Hamilton see Washington, and uh, they make a bet. And the bet is, did I invite this to you guys? The bet is that uh, the winner of the bet will get dinner with 12 other people if you do this, depending on who wins the bet. And the, 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 the sort of a dare is to go up to Washington. And Washington was known to be a, you know, sort of aloof. And Washington was not, you know, he's a good guy, but uh, he keeps his distance from people. So the story, and I'll read some of it to you, this splendid, unsubstantiated story about Hamilton and Morris at the convention that rings true and conveys Morris's ironic and self-assured style. So Hamilton and Morris were discussing how Washington signaled to people that they should maintain respectful distance and not behave too familiarly with him. Hamilton wagered, Morris, that he would not dare to accost Washington with a friendly slap on the back. Other versions of the story, you know, to grab his wrist. So the, 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 you know, the, the story is that he's challenged by Hamilton. If you go over to Washington and you'll, what's the word for it, stand, standing by the door, by the fireplace, if you'll, if you'll accost Washington with a friendly slap on the back, um, you know, then you'll win the, the dinner. Taking up the challenge, Morris found Washington standing by the fireplace in the drawing room and genially cuffed him on the shoulder. My dear general, how happy I am to see you so well. Washington fixed Morris with a such a frigid gaze that Morris was sorry that he ever had taken up Hamilton's dare. So Hamilton loses the bet, but you know Morris learns his lesson. Don't don't get too, don't get too familiar with Washington, even though they're all friends. Let me give you some quotes from Chernow, one of my favorite historians. Chernow. So he refers to Morris as the polyglot Morris was a bon vivian, means he loves life, who admitted that he had naturally a taste for pleasure. At King's College, he composed essays on wit and beauty and on love. This is a guy that writes poetry about love. Uh, he was a flirtatious man who could use charm, known as the tall boy, was thought superficial, even decadent by some. And John Adams refers to him as, quote, a man of wit and made pretty verses. So well, Adams realizes that he passes around poetry. A man of wit and made pretty verses, but of a character très légère. I don't know French, but apparently very light, very light, very light. So you know, he's not—he's not a heavyweight. He's, he's a guy that you know can be superficial. That's how Adams is referring to him. Um, here, here's another quote about. Let's see, this is coming from Hamilton. So I want to give you a Hamilton quote about Morris, and they were very good friends. So Hamilton calls him quote a man of great genius, liable, however, to be occasionally influenced by his fancy which sometimes outruns his discretion. So he's a great guy, but his discretion may be a little lacking. And here's an example of why this is the guy you want around. So you know, Robert Morris, who is one of the wealthiest Americans, winds up getting exposed with land deals, and apparently the way that he would cover his bets is by doubling down and tripling down. So Robert Morris, who at one time was underwriting the Revolutionary War as a hero you know, for patriots, this guy financed part of the Revolutionary War, but Robert Morris, after the war, winds up in all kinds of financial trouble and winds up in debtor's prison with his wife in debtor's prison. Yeah. When Gruber, that, this, Morris were, yeah. that also was uh, Andrew Pollock's life, too. He, he, Andrew Pollock's uh, leveraged all his credibility for the, the, the battle and the running of arms up and down the Mississippi, ended up in a Cuban jail after the war. Thankfully today, we're not, we no longer have debtors prisons. But back then, it was not a good outcome if you're in debtors prison. Uh, and we could do another hour about debtors prisons. So Morris returns from France and then traveled around Europe and tried to free Lafayette and tried to free some others. Um, so when he returns, he goes to meet with his protege, you know, his the person who helped him and was his business partner, his senior business partner. So he's trying to help Robert Morris and gets him out of jail, buys a house for him. And this is a quote. I gave you the Hamilton quote, uh, but this is a quote from 
and we don't have much time, so I want to make sure I do this right. So this is from uh, Richard Brookheiser. So Bro Richard Brookheiser, who's one of the biographers, uh, mentions that, let me get this right, that he was the founding father to call if you were in debt or if you needed something, if you needed something to cover your back. Your back. Morris was the one to call, but don't introduce him to your sister. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. I guess that's a perfect way to end the segment. What do you think? I can give you some more quotes, or we can continue them next week. It's up to you, man. Well, you ended it on a salacious note. I, unless you got another salacious one, I wanted to end it on a salacious note. There you go. You know, Ed Vidal needs some action, you know. He he finally spoke up. He he saw and he heard At something. At my age. At my age, it's just it's gone with the wind, huh? All right, guys. Well, that was the end of the statues and story for this we'll May the fourth. Forward to next week. Next week, we'll continue. Okay. Uh, uh, basically, give your closing um, intel information, Adam, so that uh, people can go to your website. Right. So it's always appropriate to mention, and by all means, everybody, there are all kinds of resources on the web. Google Governor Morris. But also, listen to us on the radio, and then come back to statutesandstories.com. And I know you hate it when I do this, but statutes has three Ts, statutes, A-N-D, no space, statutesandstories.com. And you can read all about these documents that we're talking about. I have not done a post on Gruber Morris, but we have mentioned him, and we talked about executive privilege, so we've got two posts on executive privilege. We also have posts about France at the time of, uh, as we mentioned, the time of um, I keep forgetting the name of the church, but... Uh, Notre Dame. Notre Dame, right. So we talk about Notre Dame. So we've got all kinds of wonderful materials where people can get into the weeds and get into the history. And what better way to read about history when we're talking about a founding father who was a true, you know, got-your-back kind of a guy who was a real person uh, that, that we can learn a lot from Gruber Morris. Take care, my friends, and stay free. That was your Statues and Stories with Adam Levinson and the Echo from Key Biscayne, Ed Vidal. Take care, my friends. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night.